Some of you are going to think I'm a crackpot junkie after 30 minutes from now. Who's ever felt like they're not good enough? It is so common. We'll all agree in this room that it's those broken moments that give us the opportunity to go within. I was smoking, I was drinking, and then I fell in love, which was so inconvenient at the time. Probably for the first 30 plus years of my life, I was really scared of the truth. The thing about truth is, it's bullshit. <laughs> Nobody gets through life unscathed. We all look at that as if our life is screwed up, that there's actually an opportunity for us to grow and expand. In 2019, the Wellness Base Camp returns. In Fremantle. Newcastle and our first ever international adventure in Auckland. Two for one tickets are under 100 bucks. Get them before they run out at thewellnessbasecamp.com. Thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to Backchat, exploring the five pillars of health thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also your neurology with Dr. Paul Bergamo and Dr. Bianca Dobson. Welcome to Backchat. My name is Paul Bergummer, and it's great to be here in our next podcast. Backchat is about being your best. It does this by exploring the five pillars of health. It refers to being your best in thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also in your neurology. Today's Backchat will cover the pillar of thinking and your neurology in regards neck pain and headaches. And I think it's great hope for those who suffer from headaches. Tell me today, as always, for Health Podcasts, it's a great pleasure to introduce my fellow chiropractor and co-host, Bianca Dobson. Hey, Bianca, how are you going? Hi, Paul. I'm great. Thanks. How are you? Very good. Thank you. So here we are again, talking a bit about headaches, neck pain, migraines. It's a very common presentation to our practices, isn't it? It is. It's too common. I agree. I'm so excited to to listen to our guest today and just, yeah, some more tips, some more take-homes. Deeper insights. And last time uh, in one of our previous podcasts, we spoke to Peter Tushin, who's a chiropractor who's done some uh, postgraduate work with uh, his research with migraines and headache and some chiropractic treatment. Today, it's great to have another view from a physiotherapist, one of the lead physiotherapists. So uh, welcoming Emeritus Professor Gwen Jell to our podcast series tonight. Gwen is an Emeritus Professor from the, of Physiotherapy at the University of Queensland and an internationally renowned academic and clinical physiotherapist. In addition to her physiotherapy qualifications, she has a graduate diploma in advanced manipulative therapy, a Master's in Physiotherapy by Research, a PhD, a Clinical Fellowship with the Australian College of Physiotherapists, and a Specialist Musculoskeletal Physiotherapist. Her research and clinical interests have centred on the cervical spine, with particular interest in the effects of neck pain and injury on the cervical neuromuscular system and their implications for management of neck pain disorders. Gwen is officially retired, but continues as an active interest in research and teaching. Congratulations, Gwen, on, on such a considerable and long career. Well, it, it has been long, Paul. Uh, thanks <laughs> very much and, and nice to meet you and, and to meet you, Bianca. Thanks, Gwen. I, I'm really keen to pick your brain. Um, uh-huh. How frequently is neck pain associated with common headache types? Well, very frequently is a very short answer. Um, if we're thinking about some of the primary headaches like migraine and tension-type headache or even sinus headaches, um, uh, the estimates are that about 60 to 85% of people with those sorts of headaches will have associated neck pain. And then with headaches such as cervicogenic headache or temporomandibular disorder as well, they all have neck pain. So it's, it's very, very common. 
That's interesting. And does the presence of neck pain mean that the neck is a cause or partial cause of different headache types, Gwen? No, not necessarily. Um, so the neck pain really can be a symptom of headache or it could be a symptom of a local neck disorder. And, and that reflects the uh, trigeminocervical nucleus. So the... Um, it, it's it receives afferents from both the trigeminal nerve and the cervical nerve, so there can be um, some uh, bidirectional pathway in the in that nucleus. So, in other words, a pain from the brain, or, or if the nociception is initiated in the trigeminal nerve, it can be interpreted as neck pain. And in a similar way, if the nociception starts in a cervical nerve, it can be interpreted as a headache. Um, uh, but there's, there's an, there's, it, it's a long story in a way because there's considerable symptomatic overlap between migraine and cervicogenic headache. And that's historically has always uh, challenged diagnosis. And, and indeed, the role of the neck in headache has been controversial for a long time. And, you know, which types of headaches that we treat. Um, yeah, go, go on. Or, or let me explore that just a little bit sure. further because it, it, yeah, it, it's always been known that irritation of the neck can cause headache and, and we know that from some of the experiments we've done in the 1920s. But it wasn't until 1983 that Shawstad put forward this hypothesis that there was a, a distinct form of headache that was actually coming from the neck. It wasn't universally accepted, although now the classification criteria, the international classification of headache disorders, which is the classification criteria for International Headache Society, does accept cervicogenic headache. But it's a really funny area because in some quarters in Europe now, they are again suggesting that there's not a distinct headache form called cervicogenic headache. So they're not using that term, and now they're saying that, well, that they're referring to neck-related headaches, not a specific cervicogenic headache. And there is certainly uh, quite a group who are proposing that there's an intimate relationship between migraine and the neck, um, or they are uh, also uh, attaching the neck to tension-type <clears throat> tension headaches, you know, rather than saying that there's a separate cervicogenic headache. Um, there's also tremendously uh, diverse opinions, in, well, both in the literature and also between clinicians. So there, there are lots of different opinions. So one I just mentioned, the one I just mentioned where they're saying there's no such thing as a spikogenic headache anymore. But then the other people variously argue that many migraines are, in fact, miscervicogenic headaches. And, of course, you've got the alternative that many migraines are being misdiagnosed as cervicogenic headaches by GPs, the patients themselves, or even their treating practitioners like physiotherapists and chiropractors. So it's 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 a it's a bit of a conundrum out there. It sure is, Gwen. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's 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 fun. It's fun. Yes. It's, it's, as a clinician, how how can a clinician tell if the neck is a cause or contributor to headache? Um, again, th this is 
uh, a area of international debate at the t- at this moment. So there are several studies that are, that are now being undertaken, and quite a number in South America as as well as our own that are trying to investigate the presence of neck pain or, or neck disorders in relationship to migraine and and other headache types. And so uh, there's debate at the moment on the worthiness of those measures. So, for example, they might use measures such as pain sensitivity. You know, they'll measure pressure pain thresholds or um, examine the neck for trigger points or local tenderness in the neck. And there's the uh, work of Dean Watson looking at the reproduction resolution of headache with manual pressure on the neck. So that they're all measures of pain sensitivity, so th- this is where my personal opinion comes in. Um, I think the only way you can actually confirm uh, whether the next involved or not is from examining and determining the presence of uh, musculoskeletal dysfunction. And it's not isolated uh, bits of, of dysfunction, for example. It can't be just a decrease in range of movement or, or just a segmental joint dysfunction um, our hypothesis is that you need to get a pattern of dysfunction to actually really conclude whether or not the, the neck is involved. And if I could expand on that a little bit, um, if we take an extremity joint, for example, the knee joint, um, if you had a person who had pain over their knee but then their knee moved fully, all your stress tests on the knee were normal and the quadriceps was huge, you, would think, you wouldn't think that um, the knee was the problem and you'd probably either look for the hip or the back as the primary source of a referred pain. And when we, when we think, I think we should think of headache in that way, that it, if the pain that they're feeling in the neck is in fact coming from a local neck structure and not being a referred pain from the head, then we should find uh, movement dysfunction, segmental joint dysfunction and muscle dysfunction as a minimum basis for us to say. There can be other things there. I mean, they may have trigger points. They may have nerve tissue mechanosensitivity. There's a whole lot of other things they can have, but the movement joint dysfunction and muscle dysfunction to me is that the, is the pure definition, in a way, of a musculoskeletal disorder. So uh, in answer to your question, and, and as I said, this is our belief, um, that you must have that pattern. And, and what's happening in the literature, uh, people are saying, oh, because they've got 20 trigger points, it must be coming from their neck, or because they've got this, it must be coming from their neck. Whereas I think, I think we've really got to look hard for that familiar pattern of a musculoskeletal disorder. Bianca, it's interesting because, I mean, as chiropractors, you know, that's important for us to substantiate what we're doing, to see there's restriction in movement from a joint perspective as a, as a key finding, pain findings. It's it's sort of uh, singing from the same sort of hymn sheet, don't you think? It absolutely is. When you're describing that, going that, that to me is something that we kind of as chiropractors would have had drilled into us and yeah. find the primary subluxation. We want to find the cause and not treat perhaps the side effects or the symptoms. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. If, we, if we look when – sorry, Gwen, you go. Sorry. No, um, with the muscle dysfunction, again, that's where it all gets interesting and headache because you can have muscle 
um, tension or, or if you measure it with EMG, you can have increased muscle activity in relation to either migraine or tension type headache as a, a phenomenon of pain, you know, that they've got this sort of uh, holding, they hold their head so they've got a little bit of increased muscle tension. But what we have found um, uh, in relation to cervicogenic headache is that there is a specific dysfunction in, in the – well, all muscles can get weak, all muscles can uh, uh, lack endurance, but we can pick up a pattern where their deep muscles actually get relatively more dysfunctional. And there's a, a test called that we call the craniocervical flexion test, which actually um, allows us to – uh, get a specific muscle measure because this is the thing when you – this is where it gets difficult because if I nominated a certain um, strength limit output that you had to achieve, uh, p people's strength varies as a factor of gender and it varies as a factor of age. So just get a, an actual cutoff point to say anybody who can't do a certain level must have a headache. We just can't do that. Whereas the – Good old craniocervical flexion test is independent of age and gender, and so that it's one that we can use to actually identify if there is muscle dysfunction in the neck. Excellent. It sounds like uh, something's very quantifiable by the sounds of it. It is. It is. Uh, and that's been um, uh, our area of research for a long time, is looking at sort of quantifiable dysfunctions and naturally their rehab. Excellent. And I suppose just going back to... Well, you've described since the 80s how the, the correlation of neck to headache and how it's sort of changed almost in its philosophy and belief systems to, to its involvement to it. And I think you described some European groups sort of suggesting it's not involved at all. Are, are they – is that a group of sort of practitioners that, that don't perhaps look at the neck at all? Are they more um, – is that – What's their bias where they wouldn't see that? Because I mean, we're very biased towards it, but uh... yeah, yeah. I, I think their bias is against a phenomenon, a, a, a distinct headache form called spikogenic headache. So I, I think that's what their major bias is, and they're wanting to say now that no, there's not a distinct form because Shawstad. That's another interesting debate to follow through the literature because he's had a he's a neurologist, yep. um, but he's had a uh, he's had a battle throughout his whole life in sort of promoting that that the neck gives a distinct headache form, and I think what's happening in this particular group in Europe is that they're saying that they want to dismiss that notion and just tag neck on to other headache forms rather than it being a distinct headache form. Yeah, that's very interesting. And if we look at, say, turning our attention towards headaches and neck injuries, does it always mean that a neck, that, that if the person can relate their headaches to a neck injury, does it mean it's always a neck-related type headache? Yeah, well, this is the interesting, this is the interesting thing because uh, no. Um, and, and it was Shawstart who, you know, is the father of Sabayakajet, and um, injuring the neck didn't necessarily, or headaches derived from injuring the neck didn't necessarily have to be cervicogenic. And he actually only found about 5% of what he called new headaches coming from a motor vehicle accident were in fact cervicogenic. So I think I think clinically the way we see that, and I've, I've had a, a, a good interest in, in whiplash, uh, 
probably there's a divergence between how their neck pain is resolving and their headaches don't. So if you can imagine that <clears throat> the headache line just stays as a straight line and the neck pain is getting less and less and less, so they present with neck pain and headache, but then their neck pain gets better, but their headache keeps keeps going at the same sort of frequency intensity. I think clinically that's probably the way that we can tell whether or not it's a psychogenic headache. Um, and there's other evidence that, that says that it can um, the trauma can uh, trigger migraines, they can trigger tension type headaches, and certainly there's all the the stress responses that uh, come out in a migraine. Bianca, don't you think that when we see in practice too that it's often a lot of little micro traumas that build up and accumulate over time versus say a significant incident like a car accident or significant concussion or it's often patients report to us none of that and it's just little bits yep. of postural strain and continual yep. workplace changes that, that create the, the problem? I agree yeah, with you 100%. Yeah. yeah. And and it makes you wonder when you see um, people with a bowed neck or bowed head the whole time over devices, uh, you know, what's going to happen in the future really? Uh, it's, yeah, it's because uh, there's a – study that came out recently that said that um, the extensors work about three to five times harder when the neck is flexed. So when you look in, a, in anywhere where people have almost got their neck fully flexed, mucking around on devices, you wonder what's happening mm, to, to the neck or what will happen to their neck. Just now, the accumulation... Sorry. No, the, the, oh, no, no, just agreeing with you. I think... Um, the whiplash is only a small percentage of the neck pain patients we see and the vast majority we see are, are idiopathic and, and I agree with you entirely. I think it's the accumulation of minor strains that uh, is behind most of the problems that we see with patients. When, when should local treatments be given to the neck in management of a headache and what sort of treatment do you feel is best with, with your experience? Um. Well, I suppose the first indication really is where there is no no question about the indications for local treatments is in the treatment of psychogenic headache. Um, and if, we, if I mention that first, um, uh, it's got to be a multimodal program. I mean, we've got evidence that the relief of joint pain doesn't mean automatic return of neuromuscular function or indeed sensory motor function. So... Um, our, uh, Relief of pain doesn't automatically, it's one factor and a very, uh, very important factor, but it doesn't mean that the muscles will return to, to normal again. So in, it's got to be multimodal in the fact that there must be a manual therapy is very, very good or manipulative therapy is very good for pain relief. But there's also got to be specific exercises addressing uh, the motor control problems. And many of our headache patients also in the upper cervical area get sensory motor dysfunction and so it's addressing both the neuromuscular and sensory motor function. Now when we're thinking about other headaches with um, migraine it, it will depend on the aims of management because you have got people who or you have got practitioners who will uh, basically treat the pain sensitivity. So in other words, they'll try to modulate a, a um, episode of pain and they can do that with manipulative therapy or manual therapy or, you know, various techniques. I mean, techniques even like uh, TENS, for example. Um, 
and again, I, I, I will stress this is this is my thoughts anyway, um, rather than hard evidence. But I think you can modulate an episode of pain with with manual or manipulative therapy. But it, it's almost like you're an alternative for a for a drug. You know, you're you're fixing that episode of pain, and that sort of uh, when you're just treating that sensitivity, it sort of won't be a cure. You've then got all the different mixed headache forms and people with migraine who may have some associated neck signs. Um, and I think they, as long as they're uh, musculoskeletal signs in the neck, not just pain sensitivity, but musculoskeletal signs in their neck, um, I think there is an indication even, you know, if it's a trial of treatment. Okay, very interesting. And it, look, it's and, and that's what we have to do sometimes, don't we? We don't know until we've sort of retrospectively done a, a treatment for a period of time, and then we've got a conclusion. Versus, you know, prognostically, sometimes we don't know until we actually do that trial. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, no, that's for sure. If we look at, say, for instance, the biopsychosocial model, and um, you know, that's something which is, and we talk about multimodal sort of approaches. And it's something which is always t- tends to be discussed, especially with chronic pain and involvements with uh, chronic pain presentations. What's what's your advice regards your view on the, the on the BPS model and and perhaps its implementation for, for us as practitioners? It's it's one that uh, it's probably the most difficult type of patient we're dealing with, and how we integrate that when we're say uh, in our in our clinical encounters with patients. Um. Yeah, well, the, the biopsychosocial framework is certainly appropriate and it, it definitely improves on the pure bi- biological model. And, I mean, everybody is quite well versed in the in the statement that pain is a, a sensory and emotional experience and there certainly can be cultural and socioeconomic influences. So so it's positive um, in that the biopsychosocial – the framework, the framework rather – reminds us to sort of look at all of these different uh, influences on the patient's presentation. But it, it has also got limitations um, because it, it, the, the, the framework doesn't really guide or recommend or, or restrict which features should be evaluated in any domain. And so that leaves the clinician quite free to choose what, what tests they'll use. And what this does is it, it risks it has risks and those risks are that the approach patient the approaches to uh, patient evaluation and management they can reflect professional or attitudinal biases I think of the clinician or the researcher so I think as far as advice with its implementation there's a couple of things from my point of view and that is to take care to consider the three domains and and avoid preconceived professional or attitudinal biases. And I think we're seeing a bit of that in the literature where if we come on to chronic, the minute the word chronic is mentioned, the patient has to have a multitude of psychological associates with their problem, and they don't always do. Um, The other thing, I think, is that we tend to get those three circles as the illustration of the biopsychosocial framework, and the three circles are usually equal in size, but that doesn't mean they're equal in contribution. And and I think what we're not appreciating is that the model is very, very fluid 
between individuals. So you can have some individuals with a massive biological component, very small psychological and maybe a bit of a social component. You can have others that have got, a, you know, equal contributions from biological and, and uh, uh, social, for example. And then you've got some who will have a, a considerable psychological component. But the, so the models to remember that the models fluid between different individuals is not they're not always equal contributions, and that also the model is fluid within individuals. So as people progress through a treatment program, it's going to change. So, for example, people can have high anxiety, high fear on the day one of treatment. With your education assurance, and then importantly, as you get their pain better their fear of movement melts away. So it's it's appreciating that not all the people are the same and it's also that it, it will change as your treatment progresses rather than having it as three rigid sort of circles and because they've got this one circle, we'll, we'll start um, directing all our treatments to that, to that one circle. It's got to be very, very flexible. Bianchi, don't you think that uh, Gwen's hit some points there, especially, you know, when the initial encounter with a patient with fear or uncertainty, there may be that higher psychological component, and then over time they can move away. But then there might be circumstances on the day of a consultation, something may happen, which would yeah. then change the whole landscape of which the presentation of the patient it, it presents as, where we might have allured that and fixed that sort of early problem, but then it re-exacerbates. And I suppose the take-home here, in a sense, Gwen, is it fair to say that we don't sort of um, we don't firmly stamp it to say this is what it is? Maybe from the initial sort of consultation, or because of the the nature of the fact that it can change between consultations, it can change with a car accident on the way to the consultation, it can change everything. Yeah. Is that's yeah. the sort of thinking? That's absolutely hundred percent. Yeah, that it, that it's very fluid. As I said, very fluid, and. It, and it, it, it changes, as you mentioned, day by day or can change day by day. Yeah, very good. When you touched on uh, briefly just about chronic pain, do we manage patients differently if they have continual chronic pain compared to chronic episodic pain? To, um, I suppose it, it's an interesting question and you could probably take that from several different angles. Um but I suppose as a global statement, I'd say I don't think we necessarily uh, change our approach, um, but the degree of assistance that we can provide and the expectations of treatment outcome could be different uh, with different people. Um, you know, with chronic pain, uh, uh, there's great interest, as you probably are well aware of the changes in the central nervous system and pain is in the brain and there's lots of those little throwaway lines that are going going around at the moment. But probably what more affects our treatment of those patients is um, we have treatment methods that, that, I mean, they will act centrally, all our education, our talking and all of that will act centrally, but our methods such as our exercise manual therapy predominantly act through the periphery so I think the outcomes um, really relate to how much peripheral nociception is driving them in this pain state. And the greater the role of the peripheral nociception, I think the more treatments, you know, as specific exercise and, and manual therapy, lifestyle, etc., uh, will assist. 
Um, but, I mean, there are other variables like the extent of the pathology um, will modify our our access as our success. Um, and as we've mentioned, uh, as Paul mentioned before, patients vary in their emotional responses to pain. But hopefully you can help them, um, you know, that they always have well, – not always, that's – not correct, but they can have quite, you know, marked stress responses, you know, anxiety or, or low mood. Um, and headache patients do have um, low mood, especially the migraines. So there are factors that we've got to consider. But I don't think – there was a lovely editorial the other day by Linda Carroll, who's a psychologist, who, who said, uh, you know, that your management of patients – um, anxieties or their low mood should be part of good clinical care in the main rather than saying that just because they're low mood that treatment directed at their low mood will necessarily help them and she says it doesn't necessarily help them actually treat their condition which I resonated with me. Uh, the other thing that I'd add is that just because they have got chronic pain or chronic episodic pain, I don't, I don't, your original question, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily have my initial approaches any different. But there's this sort of other thing that's out there in the atmosphere about, you know, once we've got three months and they've had their pain for three months, they're now chronic. And so, you know, we almost lay down and die at that point. <laughs> I mean, it's not necessarily so. Hmm. Um, I was involved in a, a clinical trial in that was conducted in Thailand and, and published last year. And we deliberately looked at older people. So, you know, their age range was sort of, was uh, 50 to 75 years, and they'd had their headaches for about eight years. Um, they had uh, a mixed headache form. Some of them, well, the criteria was that they all had um, some sort of cervical musculoskeletal dysfunction, but they could have had a primary diagnosis of migraine or cervicogenic headache or whatever. And, I mean, they did very well. The, the, the trial reduced their headaches days from four headache days per week to one per week, and about 60% of them obtained full relief of their headaches. So this notion that our treatments can't assist people who have got the so-called chronic pain, especially when it's when it's defined on a timeline, is is just not correct, and it sometimes worries me. Um, I, I think chronic has got so so much to it um, in its definition, and I don't think as yet that uh, we're defining it well enough to be able to uh, talk about um, which what which people should receive which and which treatments. Even the Pain Society says that using a time-based um, definition for chronic is probably not the best we can do. And I suppose with your depth on on the literature, I mean, we've got better response with acute pain versus the chronic pain sort of spectrum. Is that no, first? no? See, I don't think. Well, with the acute pain, I mean, natural history to a large extent. So sometimes it's 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 harder to get the difference between natural history and the treatment effect. Um, if I was doing research, I'd much rather do it on people who had had their pain for a long time because um, natural history is not going to help them terribly much. Yep. And so the benefits of showing the effect is, is in fact, easier in a, uh, chronic, in a chronic, as in a time definition. Um, people have had their pain longer 
is 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 a nicer group to treat in a in an RCT. The, the natural history's gone by that stage. Yes. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, in regards uh, some key primary outcome tool measures in neck pain on a headache, can you mention maybe your top two or three that you recommend? And I know you're going to be talking about this in a seminar series coming up as well. But just for the podcast, yeah. what's uh... Uh, um, well the, the standard ones for headache are frequency, intensity, duration. And um, like the Headache Society will recommend that uh, frequency is your primary outcome yep. and that uh, uh, you need a 50% reduction. Um, but the other two that are commonly used is uh, one's called the HIT-6, which is the head- Headache Impact Test. And that's um, – well, there's that one and there's another one called the MIDAS, which is the Migraine Disability Assessment. And both of them um, – you could use one or the other, but both of them um, look at the impact that headaches have on, on a person's ability to function, you know, at home, at, at their job, etc. So they're, they're probably – I mean, there's a lot out there, but they're probably the most common. And with the neck um, – or the most international one is the NDI, except I don't like it. Strangely, I don't like using it with headache uh, because, uh, you know, it has a question on headaches. So people are automatically, you've almost got to take out the question on headache and, and calculate a new percent, percent to make it uh, a bit more valid. But also just the VAS and patient-specific functional scale are the more common ones I use. I mean, the neck- particularly the patient, particularly the patient-specific functional scan in a clinical situation. I mean, the neck disability index has been there for a long time now, hasn't it? We're probably due yeah, for something d- new. <laughs> we do. We we are. I mean, just some of the questions even need to be made more contemporary these days. But but it is the international standard. Yeah. So that's you know you, you can compare one clinical trial to another. So that's why it. Uh, Hangs in there. Hangs in there. <laughs> very good, very good. Well, fantastic. Well, this has been uh, really fascinating with bringing your expertise and knowledge over your career here, and especially in regards of neck pain, headaches, etc. Now, we like to talk with our, with our uh, talent that we interview on Backchat some inspirational moments because we have listeners who certainly are inspired by the people we interview. Can you share with us perhaps uh, someone, someone or course or person or, or occasion that's sort of inspired you? Yeah, I, I suppose it's somebody who inspired me. And um, uh, I, very early in my career, I, I moved into the area of musculoskeletal physio and I'd worked in Canada, etc. And when I came back, um, we had a very famous physio in Australia called Geoffrey Maitland. And I was lucky enough to um, study under him for about a year and a half. And I suppose in relation to inspiration he was he was a fellow with um superb communication and clinical skills i mean he was just such a joy to watch and he was a real thinker and questioner and i think he was the one who uh who really made me you know start to think and question what i was doing and and you know push things forward in a way he was never happy for things to just continue as they were so i suppose that was part of the reason that I got into academia and also research. And I must admit the the other thrill is the thrill of discovery and research. But I, I also had a, um, throughout my academic career, also uh, maintained a clinical load. And 
from a personal point of view, I think it's the thrill of helping people. I I always enjoyed it. I enjoyed clinic um, uh, very, very much and, and, and helping people to uh, uh, manage or ease their pain, etc. cetera, I, I, I found fantastic. When I resonate with that, and I think, Paul, you do too, isn't it? It's that that interaction and that real yes. change in someone and you've been able to have a support role in that in, in yeah. whatever way that it is clinically. Yeah. Fantastic. Very good. Well, let's finish up the show with three take-home messages for our listeners. What have you got for us, Gwen? Um, I, I think it's to remember that Neck pain um, can be a symptom of the headache um, and that if you want to link the neck pain to a cervical musculoskeletal disorder, then think of those three signs that they've got segmental joint signs, they've got movement dysfunction and they've got muscle dysfunction. And just think of that group so that um, you can be assured that you are you are treating a, a local neck disorder. And the tests of pain sensitivity, which are the other ones that are very common, but a thing to remember is that anybody with a headache is going to have tenderness and tender points, etc., around their head and cervical spine, so that tests of pain sensitivity don't automatically say it's cervical musculoskeletal dysfunction. So there's a lot of things that we can do in treatment of, of particularly migraine, which are the um, things that are being investigated at the moment, but uh, to know where I always like to know exactly where I am, and and I use those three signs as my assurance that there is uh, cervical musculoskeletal dysfunction. Excellent. Well, Bianca, what do you think? Oh, I I can't wait to get into practice tomorrow morning and and hope that headache <laughs> patient <laughs> might walk in. <laughs> I might run a little bit behind Paul. I might be doing a little bit more uh, assessment. Thick. Oh, well, look, we've gone through neck pain, headaches, causes, contributors, neck injuries, local treatments, efficacy. We've talked a bit about the the BPS model, the biopsychosocial model. Uh, management via chronic pain or episodic type presentations and some key outcome measures. Pretty much, you know, half an hour little snapshot summary. So it's been fantastic, Gwen. Thank you so much. No, it's been my pleasure. Been my pleasure. Excellent. And now we've got some exciting news that you're going to actually be speaking uh, at a seminar series that myself and Dr. Carla Renato are running for Neurologic Education, Integrative Therapies for Headache and Migraine. Uh, from the mm -hmm. 1st to the 3rd of March, 2019 at CQ, Kent Street in Sydney. So I've got all the details there, www.neurologiceducation.com.au. You're looking forward to coming down to, to speak? Yes, very much. It, very much. It should be interesting. Excellent. We've got Peter, Dr. Peter Tushin there. We've got, uh, you mentioned yep. Dean Watson. He's coming as well yep. um, to have yes. a speak as well as uh, uh, many other speakers looking at the biopsychosocial model. Um, and different sort of interventions as well. So it's going to be really a, a group of about eight to ten speakers, so we're really looking forward to that. Uh, and now, Gwen, also, you've got a textbook uh, on the neck. I know you've done many books, and you've got another one that uh, with Drs. Fowler, Trelevin and O'Leary on the management of neck pain disorders, a research-informed approach. Now, has that actually been released? or pretty... Yeah, it was released about two weeks ago. So it's just for... Anybody that's particularly interested in, um, I mean, it's, a, it's comprehensive, but it does give a lot of detail on the neuromuscular and sensory motor sides and also, you know, how to assess and treat it. Fantastic. Treat those uh, systems. Excellent. And that's available from Elsevier and or Amazon. Is that correct? We can get that? Yeah. Yep. Yes. Terrific. Excellent. So we'll put that in our in our show notes. So, again, thank you, Bianca. Thank you, Gwen. Take care. 
Okay. Thanks, Paul. Excellent. Thank All you. Right. For- Thank you for listening to Backchat. To stay abreast with updates with Backchat, please go to our Facebook page, www.facebook.com forward slash Backchat Podcast. All on the website links of today's podcast will be on our Backchat Podcast Facebook page. If you like this show, please leave a five-star rating on iTunes. We leave you one thought. Be the best at what you do, and you will grow and inspire others around you. We look forward to catching up with you on our next Backchat Podcast. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.